when we propagate myths like technology is addicting us, that it's hijacking our brain, I mean, this is, this is nonsense. Uh, the fact is we can do something about it unless we believe we can't. So that's the first step. And this is the message I really want to get out there is that, that we have to look at the root causes, not the proximate causes. Again, distraction has always been with us. And so the idea here is to understand why do we get distracted? What's the deeper psychology of why we get distracted? And realize that as good as these algorithms are, right, as good as these technology companies are at changing our behavior, and by the way, if you don't know these techniques, they'll get you. Not only will they get you, they'll get your coworkers, they'll get your kids. So it's imperative that we learn these techniques now so that we can make sure that we do the things we say we're going to do. But it's not hopeless because the antidote to impulsiveness, as you said, we're only human. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So by planning ahead, by taking these simple steps that I talk about in this book that are simple but not simplistic, we can overcome any distraction. We can become indistractable. We've talked a ton on the podcast about the pitfalls of the education system. Expensive, excessive, rote memorization, and anything but interesting or effective. That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about our partnership with Brilliant.org. Whether you're a hobbyist or a hardcore pro, into programming Python, learning algebra, exploring quantum computing, neural networks, or just want to improve your logic like me and be the next Sherlock, Brilliant's the place to go to uplevel yourself in science, math, computer science, and have fun in the process. Yes, it's actually fun. One of my goals with this podcast is to inspire more folks to pursue their dreams and passions to build a better world for all of us. I can't think of a better way to do that than by helping you guys, helping more people learn the skills, the tricks of the trade to accomplish incredible things. That's arguably the entirety of Brilliant's mission. To support the podcast and learn more about Brilliant, go to brilliant.org disruptors and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that's brilliant.org disruptors. Support us by supporting them, and you know what? It'll be supporting yourself in the process. You can learn a ton, have some fun, and just maybe learn the skills you need to do something incredible. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for for best-in-class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day. Without the crash, side effects, 
or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the US. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Do you suffer from tech addiction? Are you hooked to your phone, constantly on social media, and getting angrier and angrier as it happens? Well, then today's guest, you're going to love it. We've got Nir Ayal on the program. He's a writer, entrepreneur, teacher, and investor focused on the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. MIT dubbed him the prophet of habit-forming tech, and his best-selling book, Hooked, Build Habit-Forming Products, and his new one, Indistractable, How to Counter, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, are both incredibly valuable, both from an individual and a business perspective. He's built multiple companies, written in just about every major epic publication, and has an incredible perspective on the anti-tech movement and how we can all build a better future. Today, we'll discuss why the anti-tech trend is all wrong when it comes to the big picture, ways we can incentivize productivity and happiness, how to overcome habit-forming products and be indistractable, why liberals overemphasize tech's role in electing Trump, Nears thoughts on privacy and surveillance capitalism, and the effect of government and corporations, why tech is a bit more like cannabis than cocaine or cigarettes, and why Facebook and Google aren't inherently bad, but are working to build the world and your world into a better place. And now, without further ado, I give you Nir Eyal. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So you've written two of the most interesting books in a while on getting people hooked and avoiding being hooked. I feel like that's the antivirus companies. What's your story? <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it does make for a good story when you tell it that way, but uh, the, 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 there's a little bit more nuance there. So let's see. So five years ago, I wrote this book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And at the time, the big problem that uh, I saw uh, out there was that there's all these amazing new technologies, all of these incredible entrepreneurs, and people weren't using these technologies, right? That we could, I, I believe back then, as I do now, that we can use these technologies to help people build healthy habits in their lives. And so I was look, I looked for a book to help me do this for myself. I, I started two tech companies and I wanted to start a third, but I, I believe that the future of technological innovation would, would necessitate forming habits, right? That if customers don't remember you exist, you might as well not exist when it comes to online products, at least. And, you know, today, almost every business has some kind of online presence. But I didn't see any book out there on how to build habit-forming products, so I decided to write it. Uh, I taught for many years at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and at the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design. And uh, back then, that that was the big problem that we had. Um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I've never worked for companies like Google or Facebook. You know, the, the, those companies know these techniques. But what 
I believed would be would be a, a worthwhile mission would be to democratize these techniques, right? What if we could make all sorts of products out there just as engaging as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp or Slack or Snapchat, right? What if we could use what makes those products so sticky to make healthy habits in our lives? And that's exactly what's happened. So over the past five years, you know, again, I've never worked for Twitter and Facebook and these companies. What, what I have done is, is worked uh, through consulting, my consulting practice as well as through the book, is to help companies building healthy habits in people's lives, the companies that are helping people form habits around exercising more or saving money or being more productive at work, you know, through the through uh, enterprise software. Those are the kind of products that that, uh, that that use my techniques to make their products more engaging. So that's what I've been working on. That's what I was working on up until uh, Hooked was, was published about five years ago. And then after Hooked was published, I kind of had this, uh, this, this, this revelation in my own life where I saw myself becoming unhealthfully hooked to certain technologies that I found that I was overusing certain products in a way that I didn't always like. And I thought, well, you know, if, if I have this problem and I know from the inside out uh, how these products are built, then I bet a lot of people are, are, have the same challenge. So I decided to look into it, right? And what I, I thought was the problem originally was that it was a problem with the technology itself. I kind of had this, oh my God, moment of, you know, what did I open Pandora's box here in a way? Uh, but then, you know, I, I went and I, I did a ton of research as I do with, with everything I write. And I, I read everything I could on the topic of, of tech distraction and addiction and et cetera. And, what I learned was that is that the story is not as simple as I think uh, most people think it is, and it's certainly not as simple as I believed it was. That you know, I thought what what most of these books tell you, every book I read on this topic told me to do was to get rid of the technology. That the the problem, uh, you know, that 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 uh, distraction is caused by the thing you are getting distracted by. So you know, whether it's a a thirty day digital detox or some kind of you know digital minimalism or whatever it might be, get rid of the tech was always the answer. So I did that. I, I got rid of it, right? I, I uh, bought myself a $12 uh, feature phone without any apps. All I could do is send calls or send messages and receive calls. I got myself a word processor on eBay from the 1990s that had no internet connection. And guess what? I was still distracted, <laughs> right? Like I'd sit down and, and write and writing is really hard work for me. It doesn't come naturally. And I'd still get distracted. I'd, I'd say, oh, you know, now is a good time to clean off my desk or take out the trash or, oh, there's that book I've been meaning to read. And I'd constantly get distracted even without the technology. And what I learned was that distraction starts from within. And that kind of started me on this this quest, what I thought would be kind of a, another, you know, uh, the answer was the technology is the problem, started me along this quest that, that actually turns out that it's the psychology of distraction that we need to understand, not just uh, the latest tools of distraction, right? So the, the book is really about the root causes of distraction, whether that root cause is in the workplace. There's a, a section on how to build an indistractable workplace. There's a section on how to raise indistractable kids. And most of the book is about things that we as individuals can do to become indistractable. And, and the term indistractable, it's a made-up word. The term indistractable means that it's the kind of person that strives to do what they say they will do. Right? It doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means that you try and live with personal integrity. Because what I found was is that it's just as important to not do the wrong things 
as it is to do the right things. Because if you, if you think about it, we all basically know what we should do in life, right? Like if you, there's no, there's no secret magic answers. If you want to lose weight, you know, we basically know what to do, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that, you know, chocolate cake is, is less healthy for you than a healthful salad. Uh, if you want to have closer relationships, you know, be fully present with those you're around. If you want to be more productive at work, do the work, right? <laughs> Without getting distracted. So if we know what to do, why don't we do it? That's kind of the central question of this book. And so that's why I say that being indistractable is the skill of the century. It's the, it's, it's a superpower because imagine how powerful we would be if everything you said you would do, you actually did, right? If you, if you had that power, how amazing would that be? And so that's really the, 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 what I wanted to learn from writing this book was how to become indistractable. How could I, how could I gain that trait? And so that's really what the book is about. And I'm happy to say that, you know, five years later, I'm more productive than ever. I'm closer in my relationships. I'm closer to my family than I've ever been before. And, and I'm in better physical shape than I've ever been before because I do, I, I strive to do what I say I'm going to do. How much of what you just described is technologists and optimists looking for a panacea, a perfect pill, and pessimists looking for something to blame. And all of us not being willing to address the fact that we are the solution and the problem with almost everything. You know, that's it's a, it's a great point that the solution to every sustained problem, right? All the easy problems are, are easy to find solution for. But the hard problems, the answer almost always is it depends. <laughs> right? Almost everything in life uh, that's a hard problem, the answer is it depends. Uh, that if you take a hard line one way or the other, and this is what we see currently when it comes to the discussion around tech in our lives, we really see people bifurcating into two camps. I call them the blamers or the shamers. The blamers say it's all the tech doing it to us, right? It's, it's happening to us. It's hijacking our brain. It's addicting us. It's melting our brains. That's not true. The other, the opposite extreme are the shamers, people who say it's all my fault. It's my temperament. It's my lack of, of, uh, you know, I hear people saying this all the time. I have a short attention span. I have an addictive personality. You know, they, they blame themselves. And neither of those two extremes are correct. The fact is, these are behaviors, right? These are things that we can change if we know how. The problem is that these technologies are so new that we haven't had time to adapt to them. And this is what the human species has always done, right? A lot of people think that, you know, the distraction is a new thing. It's totally not. I mean, Aristotle and Socrates were talking about this problem 2,500 years ago. They talked about acrasia, this tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. And, and so, you know, this is the, the fact that it's not a new problem should give us hope that people have been struggling with this forever. It's just that today we have greater access to these distractions. And so we need a new skill set to help us make sure that we can put them in their place. Do you think that humanity will be capable of doing this? I, I think evolution and humanity are designed to be as lazy as possible. So we want the stupid, easy solution that keeps us fat and happy because that's what kept us alive. How do we make big shifts like this when you have, A, the smartest, most well-paid and less than valuable individuals in the world working at Facebook and Google trying to optimize the amount of time you spend on screen or make you more intense in Facebook because it makes you more likely to buy things? How do you fight something like that effectively when we are only human and everyone does slip up? Yeah, well, the, the first step is to believe you can, that uh, the narrative today is that these things are doing it to you, right? The, 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 the blamers 
And the fact is that that mindset is really unhelpful, that we know for a fact that, you know, there's been several studies now that show that people who are pathologically addicted to substances, the number one determinant of whether they will recover after rehab is not their level of physical dependency, okay? It's not the drugs in their body. It's their belief in their own power to change. And so when we propagate myths like technology is addicting us, that it's hijacking our brain, I mean, this is, this is nonsense. Uh, the fact is we can do something about it unless we believe we can't. So that's the first step. And this is the message I really want to get out there is that that we have to look at the root causes, not the proximate causes. Again, distraction has always been with us. And so the idea here is to understand why do we get distracted? What's the deeper psychology of why we get distracted? And realize that as good as these algorithms are, right, as good as these technology companies are at changing our behavior. And by the way, if you don't know these techniques, they'll get you. Not only will they get you, they'll get your coworkers, they'll get your kids. So it's imperative that we learn these techniques now so that we can make sure that we do the things we say we're going to do. But it's not hopeless because the antidote to impulsiveness, as you said, we're only human. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So by planning ahead, by taking these simple steps that I talk about in this book that are simple but not simplistic, we can overcome any distraction. We can become indistractable. What are those steps? Yeah, so we have four big steps. I'm not going to be able to go through every detail, but I'll give you the the overview of the four steps of the model. And what I want you to do is to imagine a, a horizontal line. And on one side of that line, on the right side, is traction. Traction is any action, any behavior you take that moves you towards what you want. The root of the word traction comes from the Latin trahere, which means to pull towards. So any action that pulls you towards what you want, right? Things that you do with intent. What's the opposite of traction? Distraction. So on the other side of the of the line, of this horizontal line, on the left side is distraction. Distraction is any action that moves you away from what you really want. Anything that you plan that you didn't plan to do, uh, anything that's that's the opposite of traction. Now, what moves us towards traction or distraction? Remember, these are both actions. What moves us to traction is one of two things: internal triggers or external triggers. External triggers you'll be very familiar with. These are things in our environment that prompt us to action. The pings, the dings, the rings, the notifications, anything that tells you what to do with some kind of information in your environment. Now, those external triggers uh, can either move us towards traction or distraction, right? Things we want to do or don't want to do. They're not necessarily bad, right? If a notification on your phone distracts you, when I, for example, I remember one occasion I was with my daughter and I was planning to plan, uh, spend time with her and I got a notification on my phone and I got sucked into my phone as opposed to being fully present with her. That was a distraction. But if my phone pinged me and said, hey, that appointment is coming up uh, with, with you know someone you want to talk to or uh, it's time to go to the gym or whatever it might be, then it's moving me towards traction. It's a good thing. So those are external triggers. Now we have the last part, the internal triggers. And this is, is the most important step. The most important step to becoming indistractable is to master these internal triggers. Because here's the thing. All human behavior, all human behavior, everything we do is not motivated by the pleasure principle. The pleasure principle is what Freud said is that all human behavior is motivated by the desire to seek pleasure and avoid pain. That's the way most people think of, of motivation, the carrot and the stick. Turns out that's not true. In fact, all motivation stems from a desire to escape discomfort. It's all pain, all the way down. Even 
pleasure, the desire for pleasure is itself uncomfortable, right? That wanting, craving, that itch of wanting something, there's a reason we say love hurts, that itself is uncomfortable and that's what spurs us to action. So what does this mean? If all behavior is a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. Time management is pain management. So that means the first step to becoming indistractable, the icky sticky truth that a lot of us don't like to admit, is that we have to understand what uncomfortable sensation are we escaping from? Why are we using these distractions? And the fact is, once we learn to cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner or learn to, to uh, deal with that discomfort, right, to, uh, to, to, to fix the source of the problem, then that is the first step to becoming indistractable, right? We don't need the escape once we either fix the source of the problem, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in our home life, whether that's in our, our personal well-being, or we learn techniques to, to cope with that discomfort. And so that, that summarizes the four steps. The first step is to master the internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. And the fourth step is to prevent distraction with packs. And we can dive into to each of those. But that's the strategy. It's basic modern uh, mindfulness with Buddhism and no. a little bit of technology. No, 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 no it's not. Okay. <laughs> in fact, I say up front in the book that uh, that I don't. I, I mention mindfulness and meditation only once in the entire book. And I mention it when I say I will not be talking about mindfulness or meditation the entire book. Not that they don't work. These techniques are great, but they don't work for everyone. Uh, meditation did not work for me. I tried it for over a year. Didn't do it for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it works for a lot of people. And if it works for you, keep doing it. But I wanted to offer something new. And so this is a lot more than, than just mindfulness and meditation. Again, I'm not anti those things. If it works for you, keep doing it. But there's more to it, principally because the thing that bothers me about mindfulness and meditation is that it does it only deals with the coping with the internal triggers. And remember, internal triggers are just one of four things that you can do, right? Ma uh, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers, preventing distraction with packs. Those things have nothing to do with mindfulness and meditation. Where mindfulness and meditation can be useful is coping with the internal triggers, but they don't tell you how to solve the problem. So the fact is, you know, when I wrote the book, uh, I gave all kinds of techniques that you as an individual could do to become indistractable. But the reality I had to face is that, you know, I can give you all these techniques. You can mind, we can, you, you can be mindful and meditate all day long. But if your workplace is the kind of workplace with a toxic, dysfunctional workplace culture that constantly pulls you back to work, mindfulness and meditation ain't going to help. Because sometimes you have to fix the source of the problem. You can't just learn to cope with the problem. And so there's a whole chapter in the book about how to build an indistractable workplace and why the source of so many of our internal triggers comes from crappy workplace culture. That it's not the technology. The technology is the tool used to provide relief, a sense of agency and control for people who feel out of control in the workplace. I would totally agree. What I was more saying is the mindfulness of being able to identify in the moment, is this attraction or distraction type mm, trigger? Just right, being able right. just being able to see which direction you want to go. Totally, I totally. And I, in fact, the, the best way to do that is by making time for traction. So, so one of the techniques in the book is is to actually visualize, and this is an essential step, you know, only, only a third of people, according to a survey that I, I cite in the book, keep a calendar. So this, this is shocking <laughs> because the fact is we can't call something a distraction unless we know what it distracted us from. And we can't leave it to our minds to be mindful about it. And here's why. Because in the moment, distraction tricks you. In the moment, you check email when you should be working on that big project. At least I did. 
And it feels like I'm being productive. I'm checking email. That's that's productive, right? Well, if what you plan to do with your time is something else, work on that big project, well, then it's a distraction, even if it's productive. Being productive does not necessarily mean it's not a distraction. It can still be a distraction. So the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction is to plan ahead, is to have a template. And I, I can, I'll give you a, a link to put in the show notes if, if you'd like, uh, where people can actually use this online tool I built for free that anybody can use that helps you build a template using this technique called uh, uh, a time boxing. It's a well-known technique that's been studied now you know, dozens and dozens of times that actually makes it much more likely for us to accomplish what we plan to accomplish by making time for what it is that we plan to do with some kind of, of, of schedule, with, with, with planning out every minute of the day. Because again, if you, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you, it, you from. I feel like there's a lot of value in the framework, but I think there's also, there's also a challenge as well, at least mm. for me. And that's, at least in the US, we've come up with a framework where the individual kind of be damned. You got to protect yourself from the big companies who are trying to take advantage of you. The mm. I feel like personally, the incentive model, more or less that overlays most of social media and the surveillance capitalism paradigm that we have right now is an unhealthy one. And if we put the onus solely on the individual, I don't think enough people will be able to stand up to something like that. Is Is this something where we also need larger regulatory and governmental movements to try to make this it's easier when you it's easier to go the right direction when you have the incentive set up well i I think that there's certainly lots of things that we should hold tech companies accountable for uh when it comes to their monopoly status when it comes to data breaches there's lots of things that we should get regulators involved around one thing that will not be regulated away is companies making their products engaging and we don't want them to make products that aren't engaging uh we don't want to shake our fists at netflix and say hey please make Make your shows boring because I like to watch them all the time. And you know, we 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 tend to single out certain companies and not others, right? The average American watches five hours of television a night. Who's saying that television is addicting? Nobody, because it's an old technology. We blame the new technologies. And this happens with every moral panic. We always blame the latest technology. But the according to Facebook, the average Facebook user only spends one hour a day on Facebook. So where's the you know where where is the time wasted? Watching Fox News all day, or or uh, or interacting with other people on on uh, social media like Instagram? So I don't think it's up to to us to hold our breath and wait for the regulators to fix the problem. If you hold your breath waiting for companies to make their products less engaging or regulators to fix the problem, if you hold your breath, you're going to suffocate. They're not going away. And so why not do everything we can as individuals that we can? Not that that's the complete solution, because again, you know, I recognize that people operate in environments like the workplace that perpetuate distraction. So that's why there's an entire section about what we can do in the workplace. But in terms of the solution of let's make the products less engaging, ain't going to happen. Never going to happen. And frankly, if it's not this, it's something else because people have always been complaining about the world being too distracting, about products sucking us in. And so the only solution is to figure out how to become indistractable ourselves. We have to do this. There, there, there's simply no choice because companies are not going to make their products less engaging. And, and again, that's not necessarily a problem. That's progress, right? We want these things to be engaging. So it behooves us to get the best of technology without letting us, letting it get the best of us. 
Let's play the slippery slope devil's advocate argument and take this out to its final conclusion. What that looks like is each of us living in our own completely customized VR world where maybe you're into redheads and he's into brunettes and I like spicy Thai food and you like Vietnamese food, but every two or three days you want some spontaneous interaction. How does this type of this type of argument not ultimately lead to ultra designer individualized personalized experiences that completely cut people off from reality because at some point you do get to that level where reality is just not stimulating enough to be able to compete with technology well the the argument that tech, that uh, reality is not stimulating enough has, has is one of the oldest in the book, right? We said this about television, right? That there were too many channels on television. And we said this about the radio, that it was literally, I mean, there's articles about how the radio was was melting kids' brains because it's so much more stimulating than real life. And even the written word was derided for the same pers- purpose that's going to melt our minds. But Socrates said that it was going to fe- enfeeble people because they wouldn't have to memorize anything anymore. The human species uh, is really good at adapting. And it never looks like this in the moment. But with the course of time, this has proven itself out time and time again, that humans are the most adaptable species on Earth, right? That if you take, took a, a, a Bengal tiger and you put them with its evolutionary cousin, the snow leopard, and you put them in, you know, you change environments, they couldn't make it. They would die. But humans can adapt. We can adapt to every environment on Earth and even to outer space. And so what humans do over time, we may, may make a lot of bad decisions in the short term. We're pretty dumb in the short term. But over the long term, we're pretty damn smart that it's hard to convince someone to continue to use a product that hurts them with two exceptions. If you're a child, I think children deserve special protection. And I think people who are pathologically addicted to something deserve special attention. It turns out, though, that the vast majority of people who use these products are neither of those things. Not that that, that uh, uh, means that people uh, that these tech companies don't have a responsibility. They certainly do have a responsibility. And I've written extensively and I've worked with many of these companies to take steps to start helping people. I would definitely want to see more on those two fronts. But when it comes to the rest of us, it's up to us that we have to start taking measures into our own hands. And it turns out it's actually not that tough. (laughs) That if we stop believing that these companies are hijacking our brains, that we can actually start doing something about it. Yeah, anyone that has a social media app on their phone is just a sucker. And I would turn off all notifications on your phone pretty much immediately. There's a lot. Well, so of that's that's little- a big step. So hacking back these external triggers, it's a, it's amazing. You know, two thirds of people with a smartphone never do what you just said. We need to make it a default though, because people most of the time do not rise above the default. That's why we have averages. I totally believe that that we should make it easier. And it turns out that that's that's exactly the trend that these come. You know, that the two major platforms that uh, uh, Google, Android, and and uh, Apple's iOS are making it easier and easier to manage these these external triggers. And I agree. I think it needs to continue to become uh, easier to, to turn them off. But as hard as it is, I mean, in the book, I talk about how in less than 60 minutes, you can create an indistractable phone. We just have to take the steps to do it. <laughs> but people also <laughs> and, and have most- to have the free time to realize that this is where I think the mindfulness comes in. Because most people, I would argue, live their life as sheep going along following the basic trend. I brush my teeth, I get a notification, I go to work, I come home from work, I kiss the wife, I make dinner. I don't think a lot of people have that mental energy and capacity to even realize what they don't have. I I would be careful with that. I think we can get into very elitist territory when we think that somehow we've recognized the problem, right? You've uninstalled the social media apps. You're 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 a smart guy. 
I think a lot of people out there are realizing what you're realizing. And in fact, we see that Facebook is losing uh, time on site, right? People are spending less time on Facebook. Uh, as, as amazing as their algorithms are, as addictive as they are, as the tech critics say, people are not idiots, right? We learn over time. We adapt as a species. And so I think what we're seeing here is, is, is this phenomenon of people saying, wow, these technologies are great. This happens with every technology. And then we say, wait a minute, you know, there's some downside. Uh, Paul Virilio said that when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. And so we have got to expect a lot of problems with these technologies. One of them being that the cost of having so many good things, right? I mean, look, we're, we're talking right now over thousands of miles of space. We're able to communicate with each other and to time travel with our list, with your listeners, uh, who are going to hear this for free on their phones. I mean, all of this technology is amazing when we take a step back. And of course, there are going to be downsides, but the short sighted view, and this always happens historically, is that we only see the bad in the moment and we don't see the ingenuity of humankind to adapt their behaviors to get the best out of these technologies without letting it get the best of us and adopt new new methods for what's called social antibodies. And so the example I like to give is smoking. So when I grew up, I was born uh I was born in the late 70s and I the, my first memories were in the the early 80s. And I remember when people would come to my home as a kid when my parents had guests over, they there were ashtrays all over my ha- my house, but my parents didn't smoke. And they had those ashtrays because the custom was when you came over to someone's house in the early 80s, you could just light up in their living room. And this was back in the day when 60% of the adult U.S. population smoked. Well, today, if you came to my house and lit up a cigarette, I would kick you out. <laughs> like that would be totally inappropriate because we have changed our, our habits. We have adopted new social norms about how to use various products and services. And you say, okay, well, but regulation did that, right? The government stepped in. Well, there's never been a law that says you can't smoke in someone's living room. That changed because people adopted different social norms. And that's exactly what we see with technology. Already, I remember when I used to teach at Stanford my first year there, half the students were using their phones in the middle of class. Well, you know, now when I teach, almost nobody's using their phones because they've learned that's a, that's a, it's an inconsiderate thing to do to the speaker and they get poor results as a result of not being on, a, a result of being distracted. The same in social relationships. I mean, you hear people saying, oh, I went on a date with this person and what a, what a jerk. They were on their device the whole time, right? So we've learned, we're, lear- we're adapting to these technologies. And so I'm, I'm long term very hopeful that we can put these technologies in, in their place by learning these methodologies. And that's a big reason why I wrote this book. Are we at peak smartphone usage and addiction? Well, addiction is a tricky term. Addiction, you know, addiction is very different from, from habituation. An addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. And so that's why I think addiction requires a special category of protection. Pathological addiction requires help. Uh, and this is why I, I've advocated for quite some time. If there is any role for legislation, it's to create what, what's called the use and abuse policy is what I call it, that companies should should reach out to people who are actually pathologically addicted. And we know who's addicted, right? Because they have data on how much we use these products. So they could reach out. Uh, but for the vast majority of us, we're not addicted. You know, I used to say what uh, what Ian Bogost coined the term, the who teaches at your alma mater at Georgia Tech. He used to say that technology is the cigarette of the century. And I used to repeat that. And I don't say that anymore. And the reason I don't say it anymore is because nicotine in cigarettes is a substance ingested into our bodies that is chemically addictive, okay? Technology is not like cigarettes. If anything, it's like cannabis. Cannabis 
Even though there is nothing chemically addictive about cannabis, 9% of people who smoke cannabis have a cannabis use disorder. They are addicted to cannabis. Well, how can that be? How can people be addicted to a substance that does not have addictive properties? Well, because addiction is never just about the substance. Any analgesic, anything that solves pain is potentially addictive to somebody. So if enough people use a product that solves their pain, there will be a percentage of the people who get addicted to it. But that's not everyone, right? There are lots of things in the world that lots of people partake in and enjoy in, in, in moderate amounts and do not get addicted to, right? Uh, we drink wine, but we're not all alcoholics. We have sex. We're not all sex addicts. And the same goes for technology. We're not all addicted. We have to face the facts that we have a huge responsibility here. We can't keep blaming the tech companies. We have to take steps to put this stuff in its place. Which of the tech companies has you the most worried and why? Has me the most worried? The ones in China. Because uh, if you look at TikTok and the steps that they are taking to potentially acquire U.S. companies, whatever regulations we have in the States, those companies, uh, you know, they, they will not be subject to the same regulations that, that the American-based companies are subject to. And so those are the companies that worry me most, is that uh, if, we, if we don't think about these technology companies on a global basis, then we, we, we have trouble. And I think you know, we, we have a lot of steps being taken stateside by Facebook and Google. I'm not saying enough. There's a lot more they can do. I think they would say that there's a lot more they could do, but they're actively working on many of these problems where I think the, the, the Chinese companies uh, are, are more worrisome to me. Is it a little counterintuitive? The, the state of government is more or less the goal is to survive, and by surviving, it generally makes itself bigger because it never goes backwards. It kind of, it seems to move unless there's some very major trigger towards towards the China social credit type system, towards the 1984 type system, because government could always use just a little bit more information. Maybe this guy is a police offender. Maybe this guy is a pedophile. Maybe this guy, yada, yada, yada. So what you see, at least would appear to see, is a government alongside a powerful set of corporations where the government's not largely incentivized to reduce the monitoring and access as long as they have that access as well as a backup plan. Do you see any type of issues with the merging of government and corporations going forward? So I think that the, the question of data infringement is actually a lot simpler than I think it's, it's frequently portrayed. The, the use of our data is by, by companies and by technology is quite analogous to how we would see that use of data with our friends. That if you went to lunch uh, with me and we sat down together and I say, hey, how's your family doing? How are your kids? What's going on with work? How are things? And, you know, we, we got vulnerable with each other and we shared information. And then I took that information and I gossiped to someone else. I gave it to a third party, uh, whether it's the government, whether it's uh, a, 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 some business somewhere. That's an infringement of trust. And that's a clear ethical no-no, right? Like that's, that crosses a, a line. So that's the clear bad circumstance. And I think that we definitely have to, to be careful and to take these companies to task. I think there's a lot of things that are done these days when it comes to particularly in the ad tech space that does not respect our, our, our privacy. Now, do we need to ban the, third-party data brokers? Uh, it, it, like the answer to everything in life, it's complicated, right? It depends. It depends because, and here's where it depends. Because 
when the user uh, – let's go back to that circumstance that we talked about earlier. We went out to lunch together and we, we had a great lunch. And then I didn't spill the beans, right? I didn't – let's say I didn't, I didn't tell – I didn't breach our trust and give it to some third party. But let's say we, we get together again and you, you, we start having lunch and we talk more and you realize that I don't remember a thing about you. You told me all this stuff. You, you divulged information about yourself. And I don't remember anything you told me. That also is a bad experience. In those circumstances, you would either think, okay, either you have amnesia or you're a bad friend. You didn't listen. And so equally so, when a company doesn't utilize customer information that is not knowingly disclosed, right, that people know is being disclosed to improve the product experience, to make it better with use, that's also a, a missed opportunity and a potential experience that makes the product worse if we don't ask for this information to improve the product with use. So is the big issue not so much the data, which I would argue you're correct on that. It's more the access of data, either through advertisement or data brokering. So right. Google it's sees that my, my mouse is moving a little bit slower. Oh, he might have Alzheimer's. Let's sell this data to an insurance company mm. so they can mm-hmm, screw him. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so it's and this is the rule across the board with any of these persuasion techniques that I talk about in, in my first book. The, you know, the, when, when it comes to persuasive design, it's not necessarily about the techniques themselves. It's about whether the practices are persuasive or coercive. That persuasion, we pay for the privilege to be persuaded and even manipulated, right? When we go to the movie theater, we want our emotions to be manipulated, right? If we watch a horror movie, we want to be scared. If we watch a comedy, we want to laugh. If we watch a, a rom-com, we, we want to feel that romantic sensation, right? We, we know it's not real. It's flickering light on a screen. And those actors are paid to manipulate our emotions. So that's persuasion. That's when we get people to do things they want to do. Should we give people the sliders for how the search algorithm works? For instance, I want to be happier as opposed to having it be engagement-based. I think the test is what I call the regret test. So the difference between persuasion and coercion is this one word, regret. So dark patterns as opposed to persuasive patterns are the ones that people later regret. When they know what's going to happen to them, they say, I didn't want that to happen, (laughs) right? Like when you go to a movie, you know you're paying to have your emotions manipulated and you're happy about that. You don't regret the experience unless it was a shitty movie. But if it's a coercive experience, if it's using a dark pattern where what happens is not what you expect it to happen, whether it's, hey, my data was used in a way I didn't expect, uh, I bought something I didn't expect, whatever it might be, you know, so there's a list of, of these dark patterns. It's not about the technique itself. It's about whether the user would regret those techniques. So the regret test that I propose, and this is what I, I want every team, every designer to memorize this regret test. The regret test says, knowing everything that I as the designer know, would the, the user do the thing I've designed for them to do? And the nice thing about the regret test is that we can test this. We've done this for years in, in the tech industry. We do user testing. We bring people into a room. We show them the design, right? We show them the user experience and we test the usability. And so we can do the exact same thing when it comes to the regret test. And I think that's, that's the, the, the starting point, not only from an ethical basis, but also it's a good business practice because you, you know, it is in the business's uh, interests to know if people regret using the product. And so they should continually assess the level of user regret. Uh, because if you don't, people are going to stop using your product. And that's exactly what we see today with, with some of these social networks like Facebook. People regret using them, right? Like you said, right? Why would you have any of these apps on your phone? Well, that's a disaster for Facebook, right? <laughs> they don't want to just get you to use it for a few years, a couple of years ago. They want you to use this for the rest of your life. And they can only do that if they feel like, if you feel like the product is benefiting you. I would say that's true, but I feel like 
YouTube's suggestion algorithm, certainly a regret. I would say Facebook almost entirely, if you look at the feed, would be a regret. I think you could probably get into the same thing for Instagram because, oh my God, her butt is so much nicer than mine. I think when you look at the inherent nature of these products, the fact that they're consuming your time with no actual output, and YouTube especially making you more extreme in the process, they almost all have to be categorized as regrets if you really think about it. But I don't think people would realize that. that. I don't Be- think that's because true at their all. perspectives are changed after they've used the product. So, Look, for instance, remember, just to interrupt you there real quick, I I don't I think that's a that's that's a um, a moral argument. You're saying essentially what people have always said that you know pinball is bad and uh, uh, novels are bad. Why? Because they're a waste of time. But what if I really enjoy watching videos on YouTube and I like the fact that they are using my previous watching history to serve me more interesting content. That's what makes YouTube great, right? There are certain comics I really like, certain intellectuals I really like, and I want to see more content that they're putting out. I'm a big fan of of, of Yuval Harari. When he gives a talk, I want to know about it on YouTube. He's one of my favorite authors. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a beautiful facet of their algorithm. Now, of course, there's also potential negative sides. I totally agree. But that doesn't necessarily mean the tactic itself is harmful. Again, it's about user regret. It's about what we, uh, what, whether the product is serving us or whether we're serving it. But they have one objective, and that is to get you to click on an ad. And the easiest For- way to get you to click on an ad is not to show you a good ad. It's to make you into a good consumer. And to do that, the easiest way is to make you more uncomfortable and more extreme. Because the more extreme you are, the more likely you are to purchase but something. Keep, keep going with that, Matt. Keep going with it. So In the short term, yes. In the long term, no. And the fact is that there are lots... We've been through this road before, right? It's called tabloid news. At one point, the National Enquirer was a respectable publication. But today, people know it's trash. It's about aliens and, you know, Hillary Clinton becoming pregnant with Richard Nixon's baby. People have learned this. And we, people are learning as we speak that getting your news as a primary source from Facebook or Twitter is silly. People are learning this. It's, this is how we adapt and adopt. And so there are, there are ways to make this experience better. Partially it's on us. Partially it's on these companies as well. But their interest is not to become the National Enquirer. Their interest is to keep you using for the rest of your life. And they can only do it if they can convince people like you to not leave. And so when you say something like you just said earlier in the conversation of, you know, you've got to be crazy to use these products. They're shit. They're trash. That's bad news for them. <laughs> so they have an incentive to make the product better. I, d- I don't think that people are quite as dumb as maybe you think they are. I think that people are pretty darn smart and they learn to adapt to these, these, uh, these, these products that potentially have deleterious effects. I don't think people are dumb. I think they're playing against the smartest people in the world with the most funding. I I think YouTube especially is problematic. I can take you from moderately, uh, I could take you from center to all the way to hardcore Fox News, and it's only going to take several videos. You keep going a little step further, and eventually the world is flat, and we need to go back to the coal mines. That's it's kind of how that, that YouTube, especially, it's a little bit different than the other ones because you are in that individualized filter bubble that has continuous content coming at you. I don't know about that, Matt. I mean, look, the Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. That's still until this very day. And for most of the past 5,000 years, people were told what to think by religious leaders. 
And what's happened since the, the election of Donald Trump is that liberals like me, and I'm assuming you, can't figure out why anybody voted for Donald Trump. And so the excuse has become it must have been the algorithm radicalizing people. And this is dangerous because what we're doing by falling into this elitist trap is that we are dismissing the concerns of a huge part of the population. Let me tell you, P- Matt, people did not vote for Trump because they saw something on, on YouTube or Facebook. It's a tiny, tiny proportion of people that did that. You know, the, 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 there's been studies on this, that the people who were influenced by these platforms were people who didn't vote. Young people. Young people were the people who were using these platforms. Young people don't vote in this country because they don't register to vote. So that is not what turned the election. And it is not, uh, uh, you know, this, 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 um, this, uh, threat that I think we're making it out to be. Now, can it be improved? Absolutely it can be improved. It can be improved by making the kind of product that people want to continue to use. So I would argue these companies have an incentive, and I know this from the inside, from what I've seen them doing, they are scrambling to become the kind of products and services that people want to continue to use. That, that you know, if YouTube has the, re- the reputation of melting your brain and radicalizing you, well, then you stop using it, right? That's what people will do. And so they have an incentive to, to improve the product. Uh, we also ha- have on our own, our, ourselves, the ability to do what I call hacking back these external triggers. So this is the third step of becoming indistractable. We can hack back these external triggers in ways that YouTube and Facebook and these companies can't do anything about. For example, I agree with you that the Facebook newsfeed is crap. It adds nothing to my life. Now, if you're the kind of person who enjoys it, I'm not going to make a moral statement on that. That's up to you how you spend your time. For me personally, it doesn't serve me. Okay. So I went uh, online to the, to, and I found a Chrome extension that for free is called Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator. Bingo. And so when I go to Facebook, I don't see the Facebook Newsfeed anymore. And guess what? There is nothing Zuckerberg can do about it. <laughs> and the same on YouTube. I use a program called free, free software. Anybody can use called YouTube DF. That's DF stands for distraction free. So I don't see any of those ads on the side that could tr- you know, trigger me to do some, do an act of distraction as opposed to traction. So we can take steps if we look for them. And if we sit there with our arms crossed and say, hmm, I'm going to wait for, you know, these companies to be regulated, it's going to be too late, right? We're wasting time. Oh, no, I totally agree. I don't think that the problem is the needing to change the companies. I just like to bring up some of the counterpoints to some of the bigger issues because people blame tech without really considering the causes of I, I think uh, I think a big part of it is caused by the the need to have very quick stock market turnover and having quarterly returns because if Twitter wants to get rid of bots suddenly they lose seven million users or whatever and their stock price plummets because it looks bad even though it's the right mm. thing to do from a business and I mean, long term sense. I'm not, I'm not sure that's true. I mean the fact is they've done that. They've purged millions of of bots in the past few years several times. And again, you know, a stock what 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 is a company's value. How does the stock market assess the, uh, the the value of a company? It's the discounted cash flow of future returns. And so Wall Street, as well as these companies, know that the the value of these companies is not about some you know get rich quick strategy that's going to trick everybody. It's about an ongoing concern. These companies are worth more when they can get people to stick around over the long term. And so I would argue they have an incentive. This is exactly what you will see. If we had a conversation in five years, 10 years from now, we'll be, I guarantee we will be talking about some other distraction. Just like when I was a kid, television was melting our brains and MTV was the first, it was the worst thing in the world. 
because it was making couch potatoes of a generation. And that's what we're saying today about, about kids. Same exact story. Uh, we adapt and we adopt. And I'm very long on human ingenuity. It'll be interesting to see as well. I'm curious to see if we can evolve fast enough to evolve with the technology. I have a couple more questions and we'll start to wrap things up. So Nir, you've been pretty successful as an entrepreneur and investor. What are some of the biggest takeaways you had and what do you look for in a company? Yeah, so I use this framework that I, I believe is credited to uh, Reed Hoffman out of LinkedIn, which is this framework that every great business needs to be a gem. And gem stands for growth, engagement, and monetization. Uh, each of these three things is necessary but not sufficient. So every business needs a way to grow, to acquire customers at a, at a, uh, a cost of acquisition that is uh, lower than the customer lifetime value. So that's growth. You need a way to grow the business. You need a way to engage folks to keep them coming back to your business. And so that's my specialty around building habit-forming products. Now, engaging people through habits is just one way to keep people engaged, but that's a crucial element. And then finally, monetization, right? Is there a big enough market out there for your product? So, uh, and people are willing, people willing to pay for it as well in some way. So can you monetize? So that's kind of my basic framework. And, and my specialty, you know, there's a lot of industries I won't invest in uh, because I just you know, I don't have any specific uh, expertise, so I don't, I don't really know much about pharmaceuticals or, you know, biotech type companies. But I do think I have a special advantage when it comes to uh, products that require repeat engagement. So whether that's SaaS products or consumer web products that require some kind of habit, repeat engagement, that's, that's my specialty. And of course, my model when it comes to the engagement side of, of growth uh, engagement monetization is, of course, the hook model, which is, which is the topic of my first book. Are there any tools, products, or strategies that you've implemented recently to improve or take on better habits or get rid of old bad ones? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So I'm constantly on the hunt for products that uh, use technology to change habits for the better. And, and so I, I use those as case studies. And in fact, every once in a while, someone will reach out to me from one of these companies and tell me, hey, we used your book. You know, the, the book Hooked has been out for five years now. So there's a few companies I really like. Uh, one company that I, I really like is a company called Fitbod. And I actually wrote an article eh, about three years ago. I was so frustrated by how crappy fitness apps are that I actually wrote this article that was called Why Your Fitness App is Making You Fat. Uh, because I was so frustrated by how, you know, none, none of these apps were using my hook model. And then I stumbled on this app called Fitbod. And it, it, it's such a, it's so good that I actually reached out to them. I said, wow, this is so impressive. Not only am I using the product every day, I, for the first time, I formed this habit of going to the gym regularly. But I said, you know, did, did you, did you happen to read my book? Because this is, this is uncanny. And they said, actually, in fact, we did. We read your book and we, we built the product to help people form healthy habits of working out in the gym around the hook model. So that was awesome. So that's, and that's definitely changed my day-to-day -day habits. That's always good, getting a little better shape, be a little exactly. healthier, happier, live longer. What's the basics of the hook model if people are curious or if we need to get them hooked on the podcast or something awesome? Yeah, yeah. So, so the number one criteria of a, whether a product can even become habit-forming is the frequency of use. And the, the requirement is that it occurs within a week's time or less. So sufficient frequency is probably the number one reason why a product will not become habit-forming. So many products, you know, like car insurance, you don't use car insurance every day. So you're not, you're not going to build a habit around it, which it's not that every product needs to be habit-forming. It's that every product that needs to be habit-forming needs a hook. So, you know, many products don't necessarily necessitate having a habit. But again, if your business model requires it, you know, if you think about LinkedIn or Facebook or Slack or, you know, any of these products, if they don't bring people back on their own, they're toast. They can't afford to send you 
spammy advertising and, you know, to buy your engagement, they have to earn your engagement by bringing you back on their own. So, um, so that, that's where this model is, is applicable. Earn it. Don't steal it. I got two last questions. (laughs) I've earned it. Don't, don't be dependent on paying for it, you know, because if you're, if you're dependent on Google or Facebook or someone else to, to, you know, buy their eyeballs to bring people to, to your site, that's very, very expensive. And you have to, yeah, you've got to raise way more money. So exactly, two, exactly. two last questions. Yeah. So think different's bad advice. Think different is, is bad advice. So I, I found that from you somewhere and I think it was a talk. Yeah, that is an old article that I have not, I think that was a guest post. I have to look it up. Uh, I think that was an, a guest post I didn't write that was published on my blog. Let me check. Ah, that makes things awkward. Well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that was, oh, that was a book review that I did about uh, Jonah Berger's book, Invisible Influence, where that's from his book. He says, think different is bad advice. Oh, I remember what that was about. It was about how people don't want something new. They want the same thing done differently, that you don't want things to be too dramatically different from their existing mental models of how things should be. So if many times I see this where if something is too new, too outside the norm, if people don't know what bucket to put your company in or you know what that product is supposed to do for you, then they don't they don't know where it applies to them in their lives. There was a great saying when I was living in Southeast Asia and it was same, same, but different. Exactly. And that's exactly and we, what you need. That's exactly right. Right. I mean, we see this every few years, right? Every few years, there's a new ice cream cr- craze. There's a, a new hamburger craze. It's still a hamburger, <laughs> but it's done a little bit different so that there's just a little bit of variability, a little bit of novelty. Drop that Star Wars movie every year, year and a half. One last yeah. question for you, Nir. And that's if you had to, before you tell people where to find you and all the good stuff, if you had to leave people with one quote, call to action, anything, what would it be and why? Yeah, so my call to action is to believe that you are more powerful, that uh, the power to be indistractable is in all of us. If we know these techniques, we can get the best of technology uh, without letting it get the best of us. And so that's that's what the book is about. Uh, you can visit me on indistractable.com to get more information about the book. If you're listening to this before September 10th, which is when the book comes out, September 10th, uh, 2019, you can actually get the entire book manuscript. My publisher has been kind enough to allow me to, to give people the entire manuscript if they pre-order it anywhere they'd like, Amazon or wherever you want to buy your book. You can, you can actually get the entire manuscript before everyone else does. And uh, if you want to hear more about me personally or my blog posts, I publish about every couple weeks. I blog at nearandfar.com and near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. That's got to be one of the best domain names ever. Good work on that one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today, Nir. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. Hope it's been a fun one and hope you've had fun as well, Nir. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt. Awesome. Cheers, guys. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.